This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The Kiwi in Trump's White House, Chris Liddell, was back in the news this week as the opposition accused the government of failing to back his bid for a top global job, while his critics here reckon New Zealand should distance itself from the taint of Trumpism that he carries. And TVNZ aired an hour-long chat with the low-key character himself, the longest interview with any political figure we've seen on New Zealand TV for years. So was Chris Liddell asked the tough questions... And could he answer them? Also, weeks after the election was done and dusted, the advertising watchdog declared another campaign ad on Facebook was misleading and should never have run online. We asked the boss of the Advertising Standards Authority, can dodgy political party ads on Facebook be stopped by 2023? Also, we look at how the All Blacks' defeat to the underdone underdogs from Argentina prompted critics to go in boots and all on the men in black and their pink boots and Keith Quinn. But first, we look at how the papers last weekend brought to light a chilling story that was suppressed for almost two years. RNZ News at midday. Kia ora, good afternoon. I'm Karen McCarthy. A top police officer says an attack on a South Island school was prevented because people took their concerns to police. The New Zealand Herald and staff are reporting that a teenage student planned to carry out a violent attack at a Tasman area school, but it was uncovered before it was carried out. That was RNZ's news at midday on Saturday last weekend, and it's not often that the same startling scoop appears in rival newspapers on the same day. But that troubling case of a teenager who planned to shoot teachers and fellow high school students here in New Zealand occupied the front pages of the Weekend Herald and also the weekend editions of the Stuff papers up and down the country. And the other extraordinary thing about this story, it had taken almost two years for just some of the details of it to come to light in the news. Since October 2018, blanket suppression orders prevented all media from reporting the story of this teenager from the Tasman district in a detailed plan for attacking the teen's own school. It's the sort of thing we've seen in the news several times in recent years from the US, and as the Dominion Post said last weekend, it's the sort of thing that never happens here. Though it did happen once, as it happens, almost a century ago. In a correction published last Monday, the paper reported that in 1923, One man shot two children dead and injured others with a revolver in the small school in the Waikato town of Waikino. All the perfumes of Arabia could not cleanse the blood-stained hands of John Higgins, said the Truth newspaper at the time, channelling Shakespeare. The teenager pleaded guilty in the end to a series of charges, including unlawful possession of explosives, firearms and restricted weapons, and was sentenced to intensive supervision. And according to last weekend's reports in the papers, a judge overseeing the case believed that the police intervention, which was prompted by tip-offs from the public, may have prevented a tragedy similar to the Christchurch mosque shootings. And the whole episode remained a secret while the debate about gun law changes played out subsequently. Though we still wouldn't know any of that if Stuff and the Herald and its publisher NZME hadn't pursued a lengthy joint legal bid for the right to publish the details, or at least some of them. Because quite a lot of what's been gathered by the police and presented in court still can't be reported, according to Stuff's lead reporter on the story, Blair Ensor. Over the past 18 months to two years, there's been a number of iterations of the story that have been sitting on my computer. I mean, we've had different versions of the summary of facts available to us, uh, and we've had different visions of what that story was going to look like. And so when that judgment landed on Friday, there was a bit of scrambling as to uh, what the story we were able to publish actually was. Uh, And so there were a number of quite senior staff overseeing that. And, of course, uh, 
Robert Stewart, our lawyer, who had sat through the various hearings, uh, was was watching things like a hawk as well. And so that judgment, what did that actually uh, allow you to publish? So that judgment allowed us to report what was an agreed summary of facts. That's what it was called. Uh, and it allowed us to publish uh, details that related to charges the teen had pleaded guilty to. Uh, there were other details were and other summary of facts that were removed because the charges that those details related to fell away through the course of the prosecution. I mean, in my 12 years as a journalist, I've never dealt with a case like this. It is, it is highly unusual. Several months before the, the Christchurch terror attack, you've got a teen planning um, to commit an atrocity that really New Zealand uh, ha- has never seen, or uh, until March, obviously. Can you even say, or is this too difficult, on what grounds you actually challenge uh, the suppression? So the big concern uh, in relation to suppression here from the defence, and, uh, and the judge uh, was, was very hot on this as well, was the, the rehabilitation of the, the teen uh, and what impact publication of the teen's name and details would have. We uh, argued that the arguments around rehabilitation didn't meet the test for extreme hardship, uh, which is required. We felt that identifying a teen would allow people to be aware of the risk they they pose. And even if that threshold test wasn't met, Robert argued that the fundamental principles of open justice and freedom of expression were not outweighed. Now, ultimately, Judge Ruth said it would be unconscionable not to grant permanent suppression because of the need to give the teen a second chance uh, and to allow them to rehabilitate. He also suppressed, though, details beyond the agreed summary of facts. So any evidence gathered by the police relating to this case, we can't report on, which is, which is very frustrating. I think it's important that we're able to look at how a teen finds themselves in the kind of deluded position that this teen was in. And without being able to traverse the teen's history, look at the police file and look into those broader questions, we're kind of left in a position where what are the learnings from this case? I mean, it's very difficult to determine that. We also have real issues now whether there were any deficiencies in the response by agencies. So we can't look at how agencies responded to this uh, because we're not able to access a lot of that information. But that is a legitimate concern, though, isn't it? If this is a teenager who is now in in some process of rehabilitation and also awkwardness for the school involved, and I guess the school would consider themselves to be, you know, kind of an innocent victim of the story as well. Um, Was it the case that you you actually wanted to identify this individual, name them, you know, reveal the teen at the centre of this case? We we certainly sought to try and name the teen, um, but that became became very quickly apparent that that was just not going to happen. How did you first become aware of the story? I mean, are these the sorts of details perhaps you can't go into because of the, the elements of it that are still suppressed? Yeah, I mean, look, the suppression orders are extremely tricky when it comes to that. But what I can say is it's, it was something that a journalist saw that piqued our interest um, and things unravelled from there. In terms of challenging the suppression, was that a, a relatively straightforward process? Was it made clear to you, OK, these are the reasons, this is the information, and once you embarked on that process, was it clear to you what you thought you might be able to put in the public domain? Throughout this case, we have indicated that we want to be heard in relation to suppression, but there are reasons why 
this has become a very protracted process. We were set down for a suppression hearing on March 27 last year. For obvious reasons, that hearing was delayed. Myself, Jared and Robert Stewart, our lawyer, we travelled to Nelson uh, and we turned up expecting the suppression hearing to go ahead. But the judge refused to hear the issue of suppression. And the reason for that was because the necessary psych reports weren't available. However, several months later, he provided a sentencing indication uh, in relation or for the team, which was ultimately accepted without those same psych reports available. So just to be clear, you're talking about psychological evaluation of the teen at the centre of, of the story that had been ordered by the court? Correct, yes. And what further complicated things was that in December, when the teen was eventually sentenced, there actually wasn't a summary of facts that had been agreed to by the Crown or the defence. Over the coming months, as we tried to get another suppression hearing, COVID pushed things out further. And so when we got to the hearing in July in relation to suppression, there was still actually not an agreed summary of facts in relation to what we could report. So the teenager was initially charged with making objectionable publications, and that related to some of the details police had found at the teen's house. That information was sent to the chief censor for review, and the chief censor found that that information was restricted but not objectionable. So it was ruled the charges be dismissed and that the information underpinning those charges be removed from the summary of facts. And so that created an issue, and I think the information that was, that was removed from the summary of facts actually points to and provides context to what the judge was saying when he said that this team was very disturbed and troubled. Look, in this case, I mean, the suppression was extremely successful. You know, we know, of course, of other cases where information's leaked out, but in this case, nothing. Uh, I mean, since then, in the, in, the, in the almost two years this case has been in progress, we've had, of course, the March 15, 2019 attacks in Christchurch. If the story had been in the public domain um, while there'd been debate on gun laws and so on, I imagine this story actually really could have um, changed how people felt about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to wade into the, the debate on gun reform in this country, but yeah, I absolutely believe that it would have added weight to, to calls for change, without a doubt. And in the end, um, were you able to report the details from uh, the evidence of the, the teenagers' planned attack and so on, um, and police saying, you know, this, this highlighted the significant value of information provided to the public. That's what they've said in, in the stories published in the weekend. Is, is it a bit ironic from your point of view that, you know, the public just wasn't able to know about this case um, in, in the first place over a period of almost two years? Yeah, I guess there is a, a real degree of irony in that, and I guess as a journalist, we always want to be able to provide as much information as we can to the public. So, yeah, look, this has been an incredibly frustrating story for us to tell. As investigative reporters, the devil is always in the detail, and I don't think we've really got the detail about this case that the public deserves. That was Blair Ensor, Stuff Senior Reporter, recently appointed as the Chief News Director for the Canterbury and Otago regions. Could I ask you also about Chris Liddell and his yeah, sure. uh, the US uh, nomination for the OECD job? Why is Chris Liddell going to work in New Zealand's interests? Well, he's going to work more in New Zealand's interests than anybody else who will be up for that job. 
That was National Party leader Judith Collins on RNZ's Morning Report last Wednesday, restating her party's support for former New Zealand businessman Chris Liddell to be the next leader of the OECD based in Paris. And as we heard earlier this month on Media Watch, that's controversial because the man that she's cast as the boy from Matamata is in charge of policy implementation at the White House in Washington, a key member of Team Trump, which is currently accused of actively obstructing the transition of power because the outgoing president won't accept defeat. And not only that, throughout his term, Donald Trump has undermined organisations based on international cooperation in the interests of America First, as Morning Report's Corin Dan pointed out to Judith Collins like this. Well, I don't know if you saw Jack Tame's interview with Mr Liddell on the weekend. It's very clear from what he was saying. He doesn't think highly of the WTO, which is crucial for a country like New Zealand to have disputes sorted. You've got the US blocking appeal judges and stymieing the whole process. I'm sure that you'll find that when he's in that job, should he be fortunate enough to get it, he will be looking to the whole of the situation, particularly for New Zealand. Now, the interview that Corin Dan referred to there was aired on TVNZ's weekly publicly funded politics show Q&A last weekend. The interviewer was Jack Tame, TVNZ's presenter who was in the US to cover the election. On Q&A this week, I'm in the West Wing of the White House with a story we've been working years to bring you. New Zealander Chris Liddell, one of Donald Trump's closest advisers on life in the White House and his ambitions to run the OECD. From Matamata to the West Wing. And in a TVNZ1 News report, Jack Tame described the interview this way. This is the first time he's agreed to be interviewed about his role in the Roosevelt Room in the West Wing. And that was disputed, gently, by News Talk ZB's Andrew Dickens last Monday, who told his listeners one of his ZB colleagues had actually had a sit-down chat with Chris Liddell already. Barry Soper, our political editor, who interviewed Chris Liddell two years ago, no, despite what Jack Tame says. <laughs> See, I wasn't even going to no, mention I it, actually, did it for yeah. you. I did it for you. Barry Soper has written, more than once, about meeting Chris Liddell on a visit to the US and being greeted with a big hug, which he recalled last May like this. He loves Kiwis, always greeting you with a bear hug, the sort of thing you'd expect from a boy from Matamata. Who knew that Matamata men were such celebrated huggers? And you do wonder whether politicians here, hoping to get on Barry Soper's good side, might give that a try from now on. So it turns out Barry Soper did interview Chris Liddell back in April 2016, but not for broadcast media. It was for Auckland University's Business School Straight Talker series and recorded before a live audience and posted to YouTube. Now at the time, Chris Liddell was yet to sign up for Team Trump. He'd been working on the Republican Party's presidential candidate campaign in 2012 for Mitt Romney. But he told Barry Soper sadly he was of limited use as an influencer for New Zealand back then. We had a list of countries that President-elect Romney was going to ring on the day after the election. I hate to say New Zealand wasn't, wasn't. <laughs> in the top five. Um, I thought you would have had more influence uh, Well, there you go. I, did. I fell down on the job on that one. <laughs> However, Chris Liddell went on to tell Barry Soper back in 2016 that after the unsuccessful Romney presidential campaign, he wrote a book about presidential transition planning, which he said is now regarded as the gold standard for the task. And if so, that must have played a big part in landing that role in Trump's White House, where Jack Tame caught up with Chris Liddell in the Roosevelt Room last week for almost an hour. And last weekend, TVNZ's Q&A show broadcast the lot, making it the longest political interview with anyone on mainstream New Zealand television for many years. And before it went to air, Jack Tame told his viewers this. 
Now, I have been hoping to bring you this interview for some time, and I've met with Chris Liddell in the West Wing on multiple occasions. Of course, Donald Trump is alleging large-scale election fraud. And given the sensitivity of the moment, we agreed on strict parameters for the interview. There are some subjects Chris Liddell simply will not comment on. That being said, he does address several of the controversies from his time in office. And that's a shame because that transition is now a deeply controversial issue with Trump and his team basically not allowing it to happen and even sacking officials in key positions. But the criticisms and controversies that Jack Tay mentioned included the policy of separating children of would-be migrants from their families at the US southern border. And that was reported this way back in August by NBC News. Well, Jacob and I were able to do extensive reporting based on documents and people who were in this room about this really pivotal moment that happened in the Situation Room. There were 11 officials invited to this meeting. They were also allowed to bring along deputies. We're talking about some of the top leaders in the Trump administration invited to participate in this meeting, where ultimately it came down to a show of hands vote. And as Julia said, a sea of hands went up. So in that West Wing sit-down, Jack Tame did ask if Chris Liddell was at any meeting which might have taken place in which Trump's most senior advisers were said to have voted by show of hands about whether migrant families should be split up if they crossed the border. And Chris Liddell's pretty definitive answer included a bit of media criticism. I saw the, the article in New Zealand which relied on an article here, which relied on another article, which relied on an anonymous source. I don't think that's the way you should do uh, yeah, reporting, but to your point, what was reported in that article, which I read, was there was a vote by hands in the room and a, a wave of hands went up. I've been to probably a thousand meetings here, hundreds of principals' meetings. We have never had a vote by a show of hands. We've never had a vote. This isn't a democracy. <laughs> we don't run our own little democracy inside mm. here. Um, so whoever wrote that was relying on someone who certainly wasn't in the room and doesn't actually understand the way we run it. Now, the reporters from NBC in the US who broke that story back in August were Julia Ainsley and Jacob Soboroff, who's the author also of a book all about that controversial immigration policy, Separated Inside an American Tragedy. And Jacob Soboroff also received the 2019 Walter Cronkite Award for Individual Achievement by a National Journalist. And Jacob Soboroff told MediaWatch by email this week their story was not based on third-hand rehashed reports from other media, though other media outlets have reported on that White House meeting in question. And Jacob Soboroff said that Chris Liddell said in Jack Tame's interview that NBC's report said he was invited to that meeting, something that he does not explicitly deny. Now, Chris Liddell went on to tell Jack Tame in that TVNZ interview he thought that family separation zero-tolerance policy was a terrible one and he didn't actually support it. But he also told Jack Tame there was nothing that went on in the Trump White House these past four years that made him uncomfortable enough to take a stand or walk away from the job. Chris Liddell also told Jack Tame the hollowing out of the middle class was tearing at the social fabric of the US. And then they talked a lot about world trade, free trade and protectionism. But Chris Liddell would not accept that the US response to the COVID-19 pandemic had been disastrous, saying instead things like, we're in a difficult transition period, and referring repeatedly to black swan events. And then he said this. I think there's going to be plenty of time for post-mortems next year, as indeed there will be. 
Well, there will certainly be plenty more post-mortems this year and next, but little of what Chris Liddell said would have comforted people suffering from COVID-19 in the US. And Chris Liddell also told Jack Tame that four years on Team Trump had taken a personal toll. The way I describe it, look, I've lost friends from being here. I haven't lost my soul. People no longer communicate with you because you work for the thing. Yeah, there's a mixture of people. Some people to my face don't want to talk to me. Some people just don't talk to me because... But it's, I, I never know it. But, yeah, sure. There's, there's, um, this is a polarising time. But right now, the friends Chris Liddell needs are overseas ones. If he's to succeed as the US nominee to head up the OECD, representing 37 developed nations. And that brings us to one awkward question which Jack Tame didn't ask on the Q&A show last weekend. Why, after years of rejected requests, did Chris Liddell agree to talk last week for the first time about his role in the Trump presidency? Well, one obvious answer is that the Trump presidency is over, despite what the president and his loyalists still say. His chances of the OECD job now seem slim, but his pulling power in New Zealand as a big-name expat is still significant. No one else in recent memory has commanded an entire hour of mainstream free-to-air television from their place of work with one of the network's top hosts. Earlier this month, the New Zealand Herald reporter Chris Keel took a long look at the sums spent by political parties getting their election campaign messages out in adverts. And Chris Keel found the biggest spender on traditional media ads was the National Party, but it didn't get much bang for its bucks, spending around $4.50 for every vote cast across the electorates. But that wasn't the worst ratio. The cost of New Zealand First's ads, divided by its 63,500-odd list votes, worked out at $4.50. 70 a vote. Now none of that takes account of the online and social media ads. Some political parties and campaigns have got significant digital cut through with relatively small sums of money, but a lot depends on the messages themselves and the target audience online. And as Hayden Donnell now reports, some of those blunt online ads have not stood up to the scrutiny of the official watchdog. On Monday, the Advertising Standards Authority released a ruling which found a Facebook ad placed by National in the week leading up to the election was misleading. National had claimed a hypothetical retired couple would have to pay $140 more per week under the Greens' proposed wealth tax. The ASA found that wasn't true. The couple wouldn't have paid the tax at all. National was censured. The ad had already been taken down, but if it hadn't, the ASA would have asked for it to be withdrawn. This was technically the system working as intended. There was only one problem. The election was already over by the time the decision was released. Even if the ASA had been able to get its decision out before the election, it's an organisation with voluntary membership and has no powers to enforce its decisions. There was no real penalty for National being loose with the facts. Some have argued that lack of enforcement power and the lag between ads being posted and decisions being made are making political parties more comfortable stretching the truth. This week wasn't the only time National had been censured for posting misleading ads in the lead-up to this year's election. In January, the ASA ruled it was wrong on how much a proposed fee-bait scheme for electric vehicles would raise the price of fuel-burning cars. In May, a complaint was upheld over an ad which claimed Labour was better at creating people on the dole than jobs. Complaints were also upheld over ads during the election campaign by Billy Takahika and Jamie Lee Ross's party Advance NZ and the Social Credit Party. 
Overall, the number of complaints to the ASA about misleading election advertising rose from 16 in 2017 to 101 this year. That isn't exactly catastrophic, but it's happening against the backdrop of a rising tide of online disinformation which has disrupted and distorted elections overseas. It raises the question of whether New Zealand has adequate systems and structures in place to counter misinformation, particularly at election time. Do we need to come up with stronger methods of disincentivising misleading advertising and political falsehoods in general? And is that even possible without clamping down on people's freedom of speech? I put that to ASA Chief Executive Hilary Souter. Kia ora Hilary and welcome to Media Watch. Thank you. Now first off, can you tell us very quickly what types of political ads the ASA does rule on and what it doesn't rule on? So the ASA is responsible for, um, I guess you could broadly call it non-broadcast political advertising. The Broadcasting Standards Authority deals with election ads on TV and radio, and the ASA deals with everything else. Print, unaddressed mail, addressed mail, social media, digital, cinema, etc. So what are your enforcement powers? What can you actually do if someone infringes and posts a misleading ad on one of those mediums? The enforcement that we request is removal of the ad. If the ad's a problem, remove it. But most advertisers do. We're talking because we've had several instances this year where complaints have been upheld over National Party ads and also ads by parties like Advance NZ. Does it indicate that the ASA isn't (laughs) enough of a deterrent? Just to put that in context, Hayden, we had 29 ads of the National Party complained about. Seven of those were considered to have a case to answer and went to the complaints board. Three were upheld or settled and four were not upheld. Another example would be we had two complaints about the Social Credit Party and both were upheld. I think you have to look at the bigger picture of is that a lot in in considering the volume of the advertising that was out there. Do you think, though, that political parties, whether it's National or Social Credit or Advance NZ, would be less willing to push the boat out when it comes to their factual assertions if you guys had real enforcement powers like the BSA? I think that one of the challenges about, for example, say imposing fines, is that they have to have statutory basis for that. Like, we just can't say to people, hey, pay us some money because we don't like your ad. There has to be a statutory basis for that. And if you introduce a statutory process, it's going to be more complex and it's likely going to take more time. They're more likely to be defensive about what you're trying to get them to do. This does raise another issue that I want to bring up, because is the ASA's system for ruling on complaints fast enough? There was a misleading ad about dole numbers. That ad ran in February, and the decision on it was released by the ASA in June that found it was misleading. Surely by then, if it's a Facebook ad, the damage has kind of already been done. If we look at 275, 19275, which was the the car tax one, which I do have the, Mm. the, the actual dates in front of me, so that advertisement, we received the complaint on the 23rd of July. So that complaint was accepted by the chair to be considered by the board four days later. And it went to the next available complaints board meeting, which was the 27th of August. And that's when the decision was made to uphold it. The decision is drafted and it was sent to parties on the 10th of September. And that's the date that they, we need compliance from. The appeal process didn't change anything. The decision was still upheld. The actual upheld decision was done and dusted within about six weeks. If we drill down into the 2020 numbers, so up to June 12, 2020, 
we dealt with, we looked at 16 election slash referenda ads. Between, in, the, in the regulated period between 13 June and 16 October, we looked at 85. And of that 85, 48 of those complaints were fast-tracked. And the average turnaround time for the complaints that went to the board was four days. Even that, is it adequate for the social media age where parties can post an ad and it will go viral within days and then it will disappear and then another one will be in place? Can even a really quick system keep up with the speed with which misinformation can travel these days? So I I think there's a couple of different aspects to that. First of all, one person's misinformation is another person's opinion. So we, we, the first question we ask in our process is, is it fact or is it opinion? And 39 of the complaints we got were people felt were stating, you know, incorrectly stating facts. Chair of the complaints board was of the view that they were actually statements of opinion. Mm-hmm. In relation to social media, again, these ads do not exist in isolation. So I'm sure you saw some of the social media posts over the period of time, you know, when the election stuff heated up. And every single one of them had reaction immediately within the context of that post. People disputing it, people challenging it, people arguing it, people supporting it. Then the people would tweet about it. And then the media would, you know, it comes to the media attention, the mainstream media would write about it and question whether or not the veracity of the statements. So they don't, no one just sees the ad. So if the party's posting stuff that most people think is not credible, then no one's going to vote for them. But is that kind of shunting the responsibility on to voters or even the media to necessarily debunk everything? I'd expect that the Justice Select Committee will be doing a review of the election and we're very happy to contribute to that and happy to take part in any review, uh, you know, in terms of how our process worked in the wider scheme of things. Obviously, we our work was alongside the Electoral Commission, the BSA and the Media Council. But I think that... Um, the challenge the board has is to determine, is it fact or is it opinion? And if it is fact, is it substantiated? Our first question to the board in every ad that we deal with is, what's the consumer takeout? Not what the advertiser intended, what is the consumer takeout? And then the next step on from that is advocacy advertising, which is how we, uh, the umbrella which for us, which election advertising sits under, Advocacy advertising is different to selling a product or service. It's treated differently to an ad for buying a car or getting a different coffee or a bottle of wine or whatever. It's a different type of advertising. And the key to that is the identity of the advertiser has to be clear. These examples, they're kind of small beer, aren't they? By international standards, we're talking about the fee-bait <laughs> scheme, that kind of thing. But we do have this context, and we're thinking particularly of the United States, where it seems like misinformation, particularly on the Republican side of politics, is at a crisis level. We're not there yet. But the fear is that maybe some of that could infect us. And do we have the systems and structures and checks and balances in place to head that off at the pass? Yeah, look, I think it's a, a really important question and I would really hope that the you know, substantive re- the review that's been done you know, will address that. I think that there are some interesting... In terms of the ASA, it was an enormous drain on our resources, which are pretty limited. We have five full-time staff who work mainly you know, in a complaints area but the election, yeah, was a huge burden uh, on all concerned. And we certainly look at how that looks for us going forward, certainly for the next election. But when you do look at something like the fee bait decision and, and its 
something misleading goes out on Facebook and then six weeks later there's a decision upheld against it. Is that enough to deter a party, no matter what their stripe, from posting that kind of thing when they know that the ad's possibly going to be been and gone by the time well, the I decision that, is released? You know, but the nature of the business is a lot of advertisers push boundaries. The most complained about political ad uh, for us was the National Party-sponsored Facebook post on the Greens water-only policy. Uh, we had 33 complaints about that. Uh, that complaint was not upheld because the National Party portrayed and linked to the Greens policy in that post and the National Party took advantage of perhaps some wording that could have been clearer to uh, put that view out there. But it was their view of the Green Party policy. You know, in terms of the, the whole, the way that our country operates, the very clear requirement under the Electoral Act that every advertiser has to be, a, you know, there's registration for promoters, there's uh, reporting on expenditure. There's a raft of different things. I'm not, the system can absolutely be improved and there are probably better ways of doing things, but I, I worry that there's a lot of talk about the uh, level of misinformation and the damage it's having, but is that real or is that perceived? Lastly, what should change for the 2023 election, in your opinion? Uh, I think it would be good to have an updated electoral act that uh, fits a purpose in the 2020s that could encompass a raft of things. Uh, the ASA does this role because no-one else did. So the government put in place a regime to manage and control TV and radio ads in 1989 when they, um, the Broadcasting Act came into force. There's never been any regime to regulate print, outdoor, cinema, unaddressed mail, addressed mail and, Facebook, and digital. Twitter. So we, we said we think consumers should have a chance to complain about that advertising. And so we put in place this process. But, it, yeah, there needs to be a really good discussion about what that advertising will look like going forward and what mechanisms need to be in place to support it and monitor it and support compliance with it. That was Hilary Souter, the Chief Executive of the Advertising Standards Authority, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about misleading online election campaign ads that got censured long after they'd been before the eyeballs of potential voters and long after the polls had closed. got amazing fans but we've also got some pretty brutal ones and I think with that you've just got to remind yourself that hey uh, they may like to think they know a lot about the game of rugby but in, in reality they, they don't. That was the captain of the All Blacks Sam Kane on Sky Sports show The Breakdown last Wednesday after the All Blacks broke down pretty badly against Argentina in the weekend. Now Argentina were supposed to be underdone as well as underdogs so it was a bit of a PR risk for Sam Kane to diss the fans like that on TV. But they certainly caned Kane and his team after what they saw in Sydney on the Saturday. It's over. Argentina 25, All Blacks 10. There's two to play. The All Blacks are going to lose to Argentina for the first time in their history. In the Sky Sport TV studio after the final whistle, Sir John Kerwin and Bulls Maliaina were shocked and host Bernadine Oliver-Curvey signed off by telling viewers to take their blood pressure pills. And on his Devlin radio show the next day, Martin Devlin targeted the players with distinctive hairstyles and footwear and a social media game better than their on-field one. Silly haircuts, pink boots and Instagram accounts, can you blame that? 
No, you can't. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Do you know why? Because it's distracting, mate. I bet you they had pink boots as well. Who? Argentina. Did they? they I don't know. Like they're the same people. It's young people all around the world. Rico Ioani last week posted a. Instagram of himself planting the ball down like he yeah, did. But Rico Ioane was on the bench, Martin. He's not the reason we lost the game. Okay, his blonde hair is why we lost Thomas. His pink boots and silly moustache is why we lost Thomas. Now there, Martin Devlin was recalling Rico Ioane's failed touchdown that cost the All Blacks the game against Australia last month, and he had an ally in old-school commentator Keith Quinn, who took to Twitter that day to say that the coach Ian Foster should dump Rico Ioane then and there in the sheds in front of his teammates. Now at the time, some people pointed out that humiliation like that in front of your peers might actually not be best for the player's well-being, but it was no big deal. But after that Argentina game last weekend, Keith Quinn sparked a social media storm with a now notorious tweet after he'd seen several top sports people sobbing in the sports news in recent days. And he said the sight of All Blacks wearing pink boots would not have moved Colin Pine Tree Meads. And he finished up with, Harden up, blokes of today. Now, like many who know Keith Quinn, ex-sports editor Trevor McEwen didn't think Keith Quinn really meant that last bit. Writing for the spin-off, he said that both Keith Quinn and himself had been considered a bit woke for old blokes these days. But he added, Although I suspect it was said with tongue poked into cheek, it went down like a rumbling fart from Grandad at the family reunion. And it certainly did on social media immediately. And on ZB's late-night talkback, even the usually mild-mannered Marcus Lush went in boots and all on Keith Quinn like this. More a cry for help of relevance for an ex-broadcaster, which I think is kind of slightly sad. Having trouble letting go? Yeah, I guess it's probably one of the things people need to do when they're ex-broadcasters. Now that night, Keith Quinn tried to take the sting out of it with a follow-up on Twitter saying, I think it's great these days that men can openly express their emotions. I was really just thinking of the differences with earlier times. But the toxic tweet was still raging the next day, with the mainstream media giving it fresh legs. TVNZ1 News on Tuesday, for example, headlined it. And who says big boys don't cry? High emotions from sports people spark a backlash against a well-known rugby commentator. And Sir John Kerwin, the all-black who first tackled the harden-up maxim, was brought in by Seven Sharp to criticise Keith Quinn for what he reckoned was an older generation blurt. The White Ribbon campaign then put out a statement thanking Keith Quinn for inadvertently highlighting a damaging attitude among older blokes, but according to Keith Quinn himself, that's actually what he was trying to do in the first place on Twitter. And one who believed that was News Talk ZB sportscaster Darcy Waldegrave. On the ZB Drive show, he had a crack at reading out Keith Quinn's offending tweet in a way that he thought Keith Quinn himself might have meant it. So what's happening to bloke, is it? In the TV news the last few days, Dustin Johnson, Lewis Hamilton, Puma rugby players, the coach, all crying their eyes out. With the sight of all blacks wearing pink boots have moved pine tree meats, I doubt it. Harden up, blokes of the day. Emoji wink. Oh, winky face. So it's more like, well, back in the old days, if men burst into tears, we'd all point and laugh at them. Now it's changed. So I think maybe in the translation, it could have been lost. And Darcy Waldegrave had earlier made the point that older social media users like Keith Quinn don't tend to use emoji symbols as a tone marker. Meanwhile, with the so-called social media storm still going on Wednesday morning, RNZ News at 8.30 had news from the platform that had got Keith Quinn into trouble in the first place. The social media platform Twitter says it's launching what it calls fleets, as in fleeting thoughts or posts that disappear from the platform after 24 hours. 
Unlike tweets, Twitter fleets cannot be retweeted, shared, liked or publicly commented on. The companies found many users are fearful of posting permanent tweets, which, even if they are deleted, can remain cached or cross-posted. And Twitter's new fleets might be perfect for bleats, such as that now-notorious one Keith Quinn put out as a regular tweet last weekend, sparking the social media storm with mainstream news media coverage then amplifying the pile-on. And that sort of reaction shows just how much tweeting is actually much like old-fashioned broadcasting, something an old-fashioned broadcaster like Keith Quinn now knows all too well, if he didn't already. Well, that's all from the Media Watch team for this week. We'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.